on September 15, 1979, when Joel Sonnenberg was two years of age. He and his family were in a car driving on North 95, stopping to pay their toll at the Hampton, New Hampshire toll booth. They were rear-ended by a huge truck. The Sonnenberg car exploded into flames, and Joel was horribly burned. Had he not been pulled from the car in a heroic effort, he would have died within a few more seconds. Joel Sonnenberg was marked for life on that day, burned over 88% of his body. He lost a hand. He had to have his face rebuilt. He has spent years in rehab, but none of this, the, the persistent pain, the social stigma, the multiple surgeries, stopped Joel. Years later, when he entered high school, he became captain of the soccer team, president of the student body, and the prince of the junior prom. Later at Taylor University in Indiana, he was elected president of the sophomore class. He earned a Master of Theology degree, and he is now a minister of the gospel. Upon hearing Joel's story, though, questions spring to mind. How does a young man find meaning in all of this tragedy? The limitations, the stigma, the loss of a normal life. Here's what Joel says. If I did not believe in God, then I'm doing all of this pain for nothing. If I did not believe in God, then all these surgeries I've gone through and continue to go through and the pain and the suffering, that's all for nothing. So obviously, a belief in God has made a dramatic difference in this man's life, as it has so many lives. What is there about God that makes him so solid? Why is God, the being of God, a solid word to and for a shaky world? That's what I want to talk about today. In this series, we're going to talk today about God. Now, the challenge for me is what to leave out in a sermon on God because God is so big. I preached a series two years ago called Who is God? Nine sermons, each one focusing on just one of God's attributes. Theologian Jack Cottrell lists 24 different attributes of God. So what I've decided to do today is to focus on three of God's attributes. It, it seems to me these three lend themselves to the solidity of God. We think about the solidity of God as a foundation for building a life. And, and I think a couple of these maybe are ones we have not thought of a whole lot, so maybe new to some of us. So why is God solid? God is solid, number one, because He is self-existent. God is self-existent. He not only exists, but He is self-existent. Now, theologians, here comes a big word. Theologians have a word for this quality of God. It's called aseity. The aseity of God is His self-existence. From the Latin a and c, which means of Himself or from Himself. It's the idea that God derives His existence from Himself and from no one else. He is self-sufficient, immortal, indestructible, and independent. He cannot die, he cannot disappear, and he cannot self-destruct. The biblical data on God begins with his revelation of his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I am who I am, God said. That is my name. I am. And the verb form of that is to be. 
particularly appropriate for God. His name means to be. To be or not to be? That is the question. But that is not the question for God. He be. Now, Michael Jordan has written a book called The Encyclopedia of the Gods. Now, not that Michael Jordan, but another Michael Jordan, The Encyclopedia of the Gods. And he has investigated and done research and found 2,500 different gods that have been worshipped in different places by different people, different parts of the world. And even he says, that's not an exhaustive list, 2,500 gods, not an exhaustive list. But the Bible tells us the number of gods who really exist and who are alive, and the total number is one. The biblical data in the New Testament on the aseity of God. Romans 1.23. He is the incorruptible God. 1 Timothy 6. He alone possesses immortality. John 5.26. The Father has life in Himself. Acts 17.25. Human hands cannot serve God's needs for He has no needs. And I think one of the most important things for us is in this next passage in Isaiah, as we think about the solidity of God, Isaiah 43, 12, I am God, even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. And when I act, who can reverse it? It's the idea of the aseity of God, His self-existence leads to His omnipotence. No one can prevent God from doing what He has purposed to do. When God decides to create, for instance, He creates. If He purposes to part the Red Sea, the sea parts. If God determines to raise the dead, the dead raise. And so anyone who puts their faith and their trust in God will not do so in vain. And anyone who opposes God will be crushed. This past month, we had the anniversary of 9-11. And I read several articles that were retrospective, so just a, a year ago. Remember what was happening in Afghanistan one year ago on 9-11 as the country was rushing? The United States were trying to get all the Americans out of Afghanistan and our allies and our friends there. And you had that airport, the Mazir Sharif Airport. Remember the pictures of the planes crammed full of people who want to get out before the Taliban take, take, took over? And people crawling on planes and falling off of planes. All these people trying to get a plane out because they knew that that flight for many of them was going to be the difference between life and death. But I read several articles about situations where these poor people would have run the gauntlet of risks and dangers to get there to the airport, actually get on a plane and be seated, only to have the word come through, you have to disembark. You're going to have to get your family up and get off of this plane. Why? Because the people who are attempting the rescues either did not have the final authority, they did not have the say, they didn't get the green light, they didn't have the resources, someone up above in the bureaucracy, sometimes even in the State Department said, no, this is not going to happen. Their rescue efforts were contingent on someone else. And so those, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And I was just reflecting on that and thinking about that. I was thinking about the self-existence of God and how 
His existence, unlike ours, which is contingent, is essential. It is necessary. And nobody is ever going to stop God from doing what He has purposed to do. And He has purposed to say the Taliban cannot prevent God from doing that. Neither can a bureaucracy or a state department or an army or demons or death itself cannot stop God. Isaiah 59.1 The Lord's arm is not too weak to save you. God is solid. He is a solid foundation upon which we build our lives because He is not only existent, we all exist, but He alone is self-existent. Alright, so maybe you had not thought of that before. The aseity of God. Now here's a second attribute of God. This one I call, or I don't call it, theologians call it the immutability of God. The immutability of God is the idea that God does not change. He is immutable. He doesn't change. Psalm 102.25 The heavens and the earth will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now to clarify, when we talk about the immutability of God, the fact that He does not change, we're talking about His essence, His character, His attributes, not necessarily His methodology. His methodology does change. There's a different methodology for Old Covenant, Old Testament saints than there are for New Testament saints. But in His essence, God does not change. God does not grow older. He does not gain new powers nor lose those He once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser or more forgetful as time goes by. He always has been, always will be holy, loving, and truthful. He is unchanging in His purposes and His commitments. He will ever be true to His Word and to His promises. The bottom line of immutability is the faithfulness of God. He is our rock. He is not moody and unpredictable. Now I was thinking about this in contrast. In the Old Testament, for instance, the relationship between Saul, the first king of Israel, and young David. Think about their interactions. Poor David never knew what he was going to get when he interacted with Saul. Saul was the very opposite of immutability. Moody. David didn't know if he's going to get good Saul or bad Saul. For instance, Saul would have a headache or a depression. He would send for David the musician. David would show up and start playing on the harp, and then Saul would feel better. He'd say, oh, I feel good now. Thank you, David. I love you. You and I were best friends forever. Then the next day, another migraine, another depression. Saul sends for David. David comes and begins playing the harp. Only this time, Saul reaches over and grabs his spear and flings it at David, trying to pin him to the wall, saying, David, you rebel. You're just out to get my throne. I'm going to kill you, David. And David learned, you better not call Saul when he is in a fit of jealous rage. He just never knew what you were going to get. And what if God, what if God was like that? Totally unpredictable. And we come one day and say, 
Oh, Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. God said, sure, my beloved child, here's a nice, warm, fresh loaf of artisan bread for you. And then the next day, oh, Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. No! No bread for you, you little brat. I don't like the tone by which you asked me that. What if that was God? Always moody, always changing, trying to plot out his reactions and his actions and his nature is like Mike's weather page and one of those spaghetti models of the hurricanes. You never know which way he is going to go. Well, that's not God. You know, over there in Yellowstone Park, there's, there's something like 200 geysers. But there is one geyser that is more popular than any of the others. It's not the biggest it's not the most spectacular, but its main attraction is its dependability. Once every 65 minutes, it shoots a geyser of boiling water 170 feet into the air. You can practically set your watch by it. And that is why people come from all over the world to see it. What is it called? Old Faithful. How many people here have been to Yellowstone seen Old Faithful? Lots. Me too. My hand is up. Old faithful. Why do we go? It's simply because of its faithfulness. Its dependability. And that is what God represents to us. He is old faithful. If you think about how our salvation works, it's really based upon the promises of God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise, Peter says, for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call unto himself. It's a promise. And what we're saying right here in the aseity of God and the immutability of God is God is old faithful. He will not only keep that promise, he cannot not keep a promise. He cannot change in that way. He would cease to exist and cease to be God if he made a promise and did not keep it. He always keeps his word. The essence of the immutability of God is his faithfulness to us. And so we're trying to say, what's the firm foundation upon which to build a life? And we're saying it is God because he alone is self-existent and he alone is immutable and never changes. So those are the first two. I thought maybe... Some of us had not given a whole lot of thought to those two attributes of God. Now, the third one is more common. We probably think of it more often. And the third and final one that I, I want us to think about today is the goodness of God. God is solid because God is good. The psalmist writes, Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. In fact, it's only because of the goodness of God that the aseity of God and the immutability of God are in our favor are beneficial to us. If God was a different kind of God, the fact that he doesn't change would not help us. James Mishner, well-known author, wrote a bestseller called The Source. Now, in The Source, Mishner describes an ancient farmer named Erbal lives in the Middle East, 2500 BC. Erbal worships two gods. One is a god of death, and the other is a goddess of fertility. And one day, the priests tell Erbal that he needs to come and sacrifice his young son. He wants to have good crops over the next year. 
So on the, the appointed day, he drags his wife and his young son to the temple there where the boy is sacrificed along with several other children. And in the temple, uh, priests announce that there's a new temple prostitute. And, and one of the men in the village is, is going to be able to spend a week with her at the temple. And Erbal's wife is stunned to see the look of avarice and desire cross his face as she's never seen before. And he lunges forward as his name is called. And his wife that day, as she leaves the temple... Their head swimming and her heart broken. And this sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach. She thinks to herself, if my husband had had better gods, he would have been a better man. And Mishnah's portrayal of those gods is taken directly from the land of Canaan during the time of Abraham. And it is an accurate portrayal. A.W. Tozier said, what you think about God, what you believe about God, is the most important thing about you. Now, why would he say that? It's because what we believe about God is eventually reflected in how we live. Jesus told that parable of the master who had the three servants and he entrusted each of them with an amount of money. And the one servant had the smallest amount, the talent there, he buried it in the ground. And then when the master returned from his journey, he dug it back up and gave the principal back to him, but no interest. He hadn't done anything to multiply that money. And when the master asked him why, what his reasoning was, this is what he said in Matthew 25, 24. He said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you did not plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So the master represents God, and of course the servant represents people, and what some people believe about God, many people actually, that he is harsh, that he is capricious, that he is unfair, and that belief about God leads to laziness and wickedness. What does it mean when we say God is good? Again, A.W. Tozier, great book, Knowledge of the Holy he writes, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Now, God is good to all of his creation, plants and animals, but he is especially good to humankind. Whether believers, unbelievers, faithful followers, or rebels, he is good to all mankind. Acts 14, 17. God did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 1 Timothy 6, God richly supplies us all with things to enjoy. This is the, the, the general providence of God is goodness. Now, when we, when we think about goodness, some people will immediately, their minds will spring to suffering and evil and how do you harmonize the idea of a good God with how much evil and suffering there is in the world. I'll, I'll just give a couple of cliff notes on that. I can't really go into it. I will say this, a couple of resources. This is a problem for a lot of people. Understand that. It's a legitimate question. A couple of good books on this. If God is Good by Randy Alcorn. And walking with God through pain and suffering. Timothy Keller, 
I know we've got Alcorn's book in our church library. Both of these, though, can be bought on Amazon. If you ever want to do a deep dive on that question, excellent resources. And these are very accessible books. And by that I mean it's not highbrow theology, although there's a lot of theology in there. Lots of stories, human stories, very engaging writing. But we'll just say this, as far as evil is concerned, if you don't have God, you can't even talk about evil. Without a transcendent God with an absolute moral code, that whole category of evil becomes nonsensical. Uh, number two, free will enters into the picture. You know we have free will. Sin is the source of so much suffering and evil. And I'd say number three, thinking about evil and suffering, our God is the only one who's really done anything about that. By sending His Son to die, His innocent Son to die at the hands of evil people and to suffer so that eventually He makes a way that we can live a life in a place where there is no more evil and suffering. All right, let me, let me finish here with three solid responses. Our appropriate responses when we think about the goodness of God. Number one is repentance. Paul writes in Romans 2.4, Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? And sometimes we, do, we Christians, we just need to repent of a bad attitude and ingratitude. I'm so glad to hear in my life group this past week, there was uh, one of our new believers in there, our newest Christians, who mentioned that she's keeping a daily journal of things for which to be grateful. That is a tremendous practice, a journal of gratitude. All right, a second appropriate response to the goodness of God is affirmation, affirmation of His goodness. Psalm 31, 19, how great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. Here, David is affirming the goodness of God. Now, what's, what's interesting about this particular psalm, scholars believe this is one that David wrote during that time in his life when he's fleeing from King Saul. Very confusing time for David because God had made certain promises to him. He's going to inherit the throne and whatnot. But here, he spends years out in the wilderness Holes in the ground, caves, running for his life, never knowing where he's going to lay his head the next night. But this is, is during that time that he affirms the goodness of God, saying God is, he lavishes his goodness. When bad things are happening in our lives, that is not the time to pull away from God. That's the time to draw near to God and the most important time to affirm that he is good. There are always reasons to do that. And then finally, a response to the goodness of God, the third response is worship. Worship. Psalm 145.7, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing to your righteousness. The goodness of God fuels our worship. Not just the good things that He has given us, though there's plenty of that, but the fact that He Himself is good. He is a good God. I was thinking about that just as we were having our song service this morning, thinking about the lyrics of the songs that we were singing, how they were, the lyrics affirmed truths about us and about God. And I was thinking, what if, what if the only things that were really wound up being true about us were the things we sing about in church on Sunday? The very fact that we are singing them and we're singing them from our heart makes them come true in our lives. How much more fervently 
would we be singing and worshiping God in those songs? Reginald Dort was the truck driver who caused Joel Sonnenberg's accident. He'd been charged with aggravated assault, but he fled the country and disappeared. For almost 19 years, his whereabouts had been unknown. Plenty there to cause a man a lifetime of brooding hatred. 19 years after that horrific accident, Reginald Dort was found, arrested, brought to justice, and in court, Joel Sonnenberg faced this man who had caused him so much pain and change in his life. And here's what he said. Here's what he said in court. He's 21 21 years old at this point, right? Accident, he was two. Now he's 21, 21 21-year-old kid. Here's what he said. This is my prayer for you, Mr. Reginald Dort, that you may know that grace has no limits. We will not consume our lives with hatred because hatred only brings misery. We will surround our lives with the unconditional love in God's grace. That's a man who built a life on the solid rock of God and the results are available for everyone to see. And every one of us can do and are doing the same. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven this morning, we reflect on and meditate on just two or three of your beautiful attributes. You exist, but you self-exist. And nothing can prevent you from what you are determined to do. And we are so grateful that in your goodness, what you have determined to do, what you have purposed to do, is to save us and to forgive us, to redeem us, to resurrect and regenerate our hearts and give us a future resurrection and eternal life someday in heaven. Because of your unchanging immutability, you cannot not keep those promises. That's what we're relying on. That's why we worship and sing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.